Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald's Tuesday the 15th of December 2020. News. Christmas rules could be tightened as talks held. This article is by David Ball. Nicola Sturgeon has taken part in crunch talks with Michael Gove and other devolved leaders to consider what the options are over relaxing COVID-19 rules at Christmas amid rising case numbers of the virus. The First Minister took part in a call with Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove and the leaders of the devolved administrations on Tuesday evening to discuss the Christmas measures. Talks will reconvene on Wednesday, the Scottish Government said, with a spokesman adding the call was a good opportunity to review the position on Christmas and discuss whether the messaging or guidance requires to be reinforced. The First Minister has urged the utmost caution when rules are relaxed for five days over Christmas, but Ms Sturgeon warned that there was a case for us looking whether we tighten the flexibilities, such as how many people can meet and for how many days. As things stand, up to eight people from three households can form a festive bubble for five days between December the 23rd and December the 27th. Speaking earlier today, the First Minister said... There will be a Four Nations discussion later today to take stock of recent developments. But for now, I would urge the utmost caution. If you can avoid mixing with other households over Christmas, especially indoors, please do. But if you feel it is essential to do so, and we have tried to be pragmatic in recognising that some people will, then please reduce your unnecessary contacts as much as possible between now and then. Pressing the First Minister as she confirmed Aberdeen, Aberdeenshire and East Lothian will be moved from Tier 2 to Tier 3 from Friday, Scottish Greens co-leader Patrick Harvey said the Four Nations committed in advance to the Christmas relaxation before waiting to see whether measures in place were effective. He added that it now looks pretty clear that decision was rash. Mr Harvey asked Ms Sturgeon what position will the First Minister advocate on her call with Michael Gove later on today. Ms Sturgeon says the call will consider what the options are. She added, I'm not going into it with a fixed view, but I do think there is a case for us looking whether we tighten the flexibilities that were given any further, both in terms of duration and numbers of people meeting. I will consider the views of the other nations. If we can come to a four nations agreement, I think that would be preferable. If that is not possible, we will continue to consider within the Scottish Government what we think is appropriate. Wales First Minister Mark Drakeford described the four nations approach to the festive period as a hard-won agreement and said he will not lightly put it aside. The move comes as Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer demanded an urgent review into the easing of rules after leading medical journals warned that a lessening of restrictions 
would cost many lives. This article is by David Ball. You are listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Monday 14th December 2020. More needs to be done to get music back into schools and across the community. An opinion article by Anne Fotheringham, Senior Features Writer. During the very first Christmas show we attended at our boys' primary school, a glorious mash-up of the Cinderella story and a traditional nativity, the star of the East got a fit of the hiccups in the middle of her scene with the Ernest Shepherds. She got through it, trooper that she was, and retreated to her spot at the back of the stage for the next few choruses. Unfortunately, with every hiccup, despite her best attempts to stifle them, her sparkly dilly-bopper headband gave a little wiggle, causing much mirth amongst the watching parents. Choking back our giggles amid deep sympathy for her plight, we made it to the interval, and it gave us all a good laugh over the tea and mince pies. She was oblivious, of course, which made it all the funnier. The annual Christmas service stroke concert stroke nativity stroke show has given us a few priceless moments over the years. The time the Star of the East, clearly a troublesome role that one, momentarily distracted by her hair coming out of her ponytail, let her giant star on a stick droop dangerously low, nearly decapitating the three wise men. The year of flu outbreak and a string of disasters decimated proceedings, prompting the then seven-year-old to announce dramatically that a virus has wiped out the angels, the stage has collapsed and we still don't have a baby Jesus. And the moment a fast-paced song about a funky monkey went very wrong very quickly for the young lass trying to get her tongue round the lyrics. On reflection, perhaps, that was one funky monkey too many, apologised the ashen-faced head teacher afterwards. Ever since those magical days of primary one, when they dressed up in tea towels and tinsel and belted out songs about angel warships and baby cheeses to high school orchestras and plays, music and song has been a much-loved part of the winter term at school. It is hard to take this year, knowing that none of this can happen. Kudos to the teachers and music tutors who have worked incredibly hard to find ways of helping young people continue to rehearse and perform. But the fact remains that music education has been badly disrupted during this pandemic. According to a recent report by the Incorporated Society of Musicians, the ISM, there is genuine cause for alarm. Beyond the intrinsic value of studying music for its own sake, There is a plethora of evidence that studying music builds cultural knowledge, creative skills and improves children's health, well-being and wider educational attainment. States the report which reveals more than two-thirds, that 68% of primary school teachers and more than a third, 39% of secondary school teachers, reported a reduction in music provision as a direct result of the pandemic. More action needs to be taken. We have to find a way of doing music safely in schools and across the community before lasting damage is done. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 14th of December 2020. Music Books of the Year, 
The New Romantics, John Martin, Britpop and more by Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. Sometimes it can feel like we're living in an internal 1980s. Turn the TV on and there's Maggie and Princess Die in the crown. Turn the radio on or walk around a supermarket and you get a blast of Madonna or Prince or Kim Wilde. Brackets, or at this time of year it's probably Wham's Last Christmas. Close brackets. It's the same in bookshops. Go in, if you can, and you'll find the music shelves covered in books about the decade we don't seem to be able to give up. This year alone you could read books by Soft Cells Dave Ball. Brackets, Electronic Boy, Omnibus Press, £20, close brackets. A wonderfully lush and honest memoir. Chris France of Talking Heads, brackets, Remain in Love, White Rabbit, £20. Possible alternative title, The Trouble with David Byrne, close brackets. Shirley and Martin Kemp, brackets, Shirley and Martin Kemp, It's a Love Story, Mirror Books, £20. A Spandau Ballet Stroke Wham two for one, close brackets, and even Judas Priest's Rob Halford, brackets, confess, headline, 20 pounds, close brackets. Were the 1980s really that special though? Dylan Jones, editor-in-chief at GQ, spends more than 600 pages in his new book, Sweet Dreams, Faber, 20 pounds, arguing that indeed they were. It's possible that you might consider that rather excessive, given that as the subtitle explains, Jones is telling the story of the New Romantics, but in truth the book uses the denizens of the Blitz Club as a foundation to build up a cultural history of the time, one that takes in Bowie and Roxy music, punk, the rise of synth-pop, postmodernism, politics, sexuality and fashion. Jones's theory is that the bands who emerged from the London scene at the start of the 1980s forged the template for pop, brackets, and pop culture, close brackets, that framed the rest of the decade and beyond. At times, it does feel like the book is pushing its ideas beyond what the evidence might sustain, and there's certainly only one ghost of the notion that the other cities in the UK, whether Glasgow, Liverpool, Manchester or Sheffield, were just as important as London in that decade's musical history. Still, the book's mix of first-person testimony for many of the pop stars and those around them involved, brackets from Boy George and Adam Ant to magazine editors, stylists and DJs, close brackets, interspersed with Jones's own enjoyable opinionated contextualisation, making for an engaging page-turning delight. Altogether, it is a powerful argument for the importance of pop music. For that, it deserves the space it takes up in the world. Bananarama turn up in Jonesy's book from time to time, but founding members Sarah Dallin and Karen Woodward offer their own take and their own story in really saying something, brackets Hutchinson, £20, close brackets. It works best as an account of a lifelong friendship. Woodward is open about her depression in both speaking, brackets sparingly, close brackets, about the sexism they encountered in the early days but they have clearly decided to keep most of their secrets to themselves. As a result, this is a frothy account of parties and friendships and taking a hand out of George Michael. Gary Newman also makes an appearance in Sweet Dreams, but he's very much one of the book's outsider figures. It's an idea of his own memoir, R. Evolution, brackets Constable, £20, close brackets, rather endorses. He has Asperger's and this is a nakedly honest account of his life. Newman was a key figure in popularising electronic music at the end of the 70s, but the years of ridicule that followed, brackets thanks to hair transplants and his sometimes ill-fated flying exploits, close brackets, did much to undermine his reputation and it seems his self-belief. 
as a result, much of this book is as much about one man's insecurities and battles with depression as it is about his music. He talks candidly about his financial troubles during the 1980s and 90s, brackets, regularly buying planes and boats probably didn't help, close brackets, and the IVF treatments his wife Gemma took on in the hope of becoming pregnant, brackets, ultimately successfully, thankfully, close brackets, that he can find the humour in their attempts to conceive and even in the screaming terror of his 1981 round-world flight is what makes this book worth your time. For Newman it was planes and boats, for New Order drummer Stephen Morris it was tanks. According to Fast Forward Confessions of a Post-Punk Percussionist, Volume 2, brackets, Constable, £20, close brackets, the tanks were the thing he turned to when he gave up drugs. It quickly became the most interesting thing about him, he suggests... I went from being a boring nerd to a boring nerd with a tank. Morris is indeed nerdy, brackets, there is an awful lot of words and pictures about synths here, close brackets, but he's funny with it. Fast forward is a mordantly amusing account of excessive behaviour by the band and those around them. There was music after the 1980s, of course, as While We Were Getting High, Britpop in the 90s by Kevin Cummins, brackets, Castle Illustrated, £30, close brackets, a new compilation of photographs by NME photographer Kevin Cummins proves. Concentrating in the Britpop era, this is a visual record of that moment in the mid-1990s when Blur and Oasis, brackets, and Sweat and Pulp and Elastica and Sleeper, close brackets, ruled the roost. Cummins was on hand to catch the hedonistic moment. As Noel Gallagher notes, let's put it this way, youth was not wasted on us. The lyricist Don Black was still active in the 1980s, he's still active now, but he was at his height writing lyrics for John Barry and even Michael Jackson in the 1960s and 1970s. Black's memoir, The Sanest Guy in the Room, brackets, Constable, £20, close brackets, is an anecdote-laden take on a charmed life that is only darkened by the loss of his beloved wife Shirley, who died in 2018. Black makes for entertaining company. Talking of Maybe That's Your Problem, his ill-fated musical about premature ejaculation, he notes, I always think it was ironic that the show didn't last long either. There's less fun to be had in Graham Thompson's biography of John Martin, Small Hours, brackets, Omnibus Press, £20, close brackets, is a sober and sobering take on the life of a man who rarely was. Simply put, Martin was a brilliant musician, but a terrible human being. He carved a trail of damage through his life, hurting friends, partners, family and himself. In small hours, Thompson, sometimes of this parish, does a deft job of recognising the smeary, growling beauty of Martin's music, while never shying away from the man's failings. And there were many. His first wife, Beverly Martin, effectively ended her own musical career when she married him and was the victim of abuse in their years together. Martin's children also suffered a huge neglect, what emerges is a portrait of a man who was a sometimes charming monster. It is a measure of Thompson's skill in telling his story that we come away still wanting to hear the music, even though we're not that keen on the man who made it. The most exhaustive biography of the year is Paul Gorman's The Life and Times of Malcolm McLaren, brackets, Little Brown, £30, close brackets, which offers a deep dive into the sometimes problematic career of the erstwhile manager of the Sex Pistols in Bow Wow Wow. Gorman dots all the I's and every T in what is likely to be the last word on his subject. Is there anything new to say about the Beatles? Perhaps not, but in 1, 2, 3, 4, The Beatles in Time, brackets, 4th Estate, £20, close brackets, Craig Brown at least finds a new way to tell a familiar story. By digging into contemporary biographies, diaries, letters and reportage, 
Brown reframes the Beatles' narrative into a series of connected mini-essays that also work as a post-war social history. Now and again, Brown's prejudices are rather too obvious, brackets, he clearly doesn't like Yoko Ono, close brackets, but this is a hugely enjoyable take in one of Pop's most over-familiar narratives. It's particularly fascinating for the way it zooms in on the people whose lives came into the orbit of John, Paul, George and Ringo. There's a chapter in Jimmy Nickel, who took over from Ringo on an Australian tour when the Beatles drummer had tonsillitis, which beautifully follows his subsequent failed attempts to turn his moment in the sun into a musical career. It's just over 12 pages long, but it's worth the price of admission on its own. The best music book of the year, though, takes us back to the 1970s and 1980s. Broken Greek, brackets, Quercus, 20 pounds, close brackets, is a joyous, happy, sad memoir by music journalist Peter Pafidis that has all the immediacy of your favourite 7-inch. Pafidis was a shy, anxious boy growing up in Birmingham, worried about his separate parents' marriage and his own second-generation immigrant status. Listening to Radio 1 and watching Top of the Pops was his escape. He looked to pop stars to be substitute parent figures and music to help him understand his place in the world. This is a glorious, funny, evocative snapshot of his childhood, shot through with regret and nostalgia. It will resonate with anyone old enough to remember Dial-A-Disc, Wimpy and Grange Hill. Yeah, best of all, it's a book deeply in love with pop music, aren't we all? Alexa, play me the greatest hits of 1983, please, by Teddy Jameson. Recorded from the Herald, 15th of December 2020. More questions than answers from Celtic AGM, and there weren't many questions. Graham McGarry. As much as Peter Law has been desperate to see fans back inside Celtic Park since this wretched pandemic arrived on our shores, there would have been times over the past few troubled weeks where he perhaps wasn't quite so eager to face his paying customers. At no time would that sentiment have been bubbling nearer the surface than yesterday, as the Celtic chief executive and the rest of the club's board were spared what some fans perceive as the annual indignity of having to rub shoulders with Joe Public, or in this case, the club's shareholders. Instead, Chairman Ian Bankier presented over a virtual AGM where all the dry formalities remained, but where the unpredictability of fielding questions from the floor was supplanted by the considerably less volatile prospect of pre-recorded interviews with Celtic TV host Jerry McCulloch. As consummate a broadcaster as McCulloch is, Jeremy Paxman he ain't. First up, though, was the annual run-through of resolutions and re-elections that were swept through with little fuss, with the only real point of interest for fans coming with the raising of Resolution 11, the follow-up to Resolution 12, which implored Celtic to refer the SFA to UEFA over the granting of a licence for Rangers to compete in Europe back in 2010. The board recommended that the resolution be rejected by shareholders, and so it was in resounding fashion with just 2.82% in favour of the motion and 97.18% against. Remarkably, that was the closest margin of the day. Bankier explained the view of the board that the SFA should hold an independent review into the matter, saying, We've taken professional advice and engaged with the interested shareholders. We understand our duties to shareholders. The requirement to consider the views of shareholders has been at the forefront of the mind. Peter Lowell raised this matter with the SFA in 2011 and 2012, before Resolution 12 was raised in 2013. The matter has been reviewed by the board on a regular basis. 
I've reviewed this matter and I'm satisfied that at no time has anyone at the club misled shareholders on this issue. The club called on the SFA to hold an independent review. The SFA declined to hold such a review. The club remains of the view that an independent review is the best way forward. In May 2020, the Scottish FA decided not to process proceedings. We all agree this situation is disappointing. Then it was on to the Q&A, which as well as being hosted by the Celtic TV host, had the feeling of a club channel production. While shareholders were invited to send in questions for their board prior to the meeting, Bankier explained that to avoid repetition, T. Lawl and manager Neil Lennon had sat down with McCulloch to go through some of the more general points, while they would write to others individually to answer their queries. Of course, finding a satisfactory way to address the concerns raised by supporters in these strange times was never going to be easy, but the whole thing felt sterile and stage-managed, with hard questions reduced to softball setups. There were, however, robust defences of the board and the manager from Lowell, who steadfastly rebuked the idea that high headians at the club had been sleeping at the wheel as the quest for ten in a row had lurched violently off course. They had spent £35 million on transfers, he argued, an unprecedented investment in the playing squad. That may be true, but what wasn't examined, though, was how wisely that money was spent. They are backing Lennon because he is a Celtic man and knows what it takes to win a title, even from such a disadvantageous position. Again true, but what wasn't examined was how they got into a position where a manager who is going for a quadruple treble at the weekend is under such pressure from disgruntled supporters. Indeed, the trumpeting of the domestic success over the past few years is deserved, but there seemed a lack of recognition that it is what is going on in the present that is setting alarm bells ringing. There was an insistence that Celtic see themselves as a top-level European club in everything that they do. That may very well also be true, but what wasn't examined were the reasons behind the failure to qualify for the Champions League group stages for three consecutive free seasons, and the subsequent financial rewards that have been missed as a result, and so it went on. For Lennon's part, he offered his own passionate defence of his Celtic credentials, and also reiterated his belief that he could ultimately get Celtic back on track and reel in Rangers' claim to the place in history that seemed all but fated at the beginning of the campaign. Whether the Celtic board were foolhardy to back their man remains to be seen, but what can't be doubted is the depth of feeling that Lennon has for the club. No one, he said, wants to win ten in a row more than him. I've been a Celtic fan all my life and I'll be a Celtic fan for the rest of my life, said Lennon. This means more to me than anything in my life apart from my family. I've got a great CEO in Peter Lowell who has brought mega success to the club. We want more, we're hungry. Fans will see that every now and again we're going to have a struggle. We've no doubt that we'll come out the other side stronger than ever. Actions, of course, will speak louder than words, however warm they are. It remains to be seen if history will judge the Celtic board to have been hopelessly out of touch with their own fans, blowing their chance of making history as a result, or whether they will be vindicated for having the courage of their convictions. That all now depends on whether Lennon can take these Celtic players to do their talking on the pitch. You are listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Tuesday 15th December 2020. Issue of the day, the Christmas number one. 
In any year, the top chart spot is quite a prize. But this year, it's more special than ever. And there's a fair old battle brewing to join Queen, the Beatles and Bob the Builder for the honour of having had a Christmas number one. Did you say Bob the Builder? Yes. Released on December the 4th, 2000, Can We Fix It? beat Westlife's What Makes a Man to the coveted Christmas number one spot, a lovely present for writer Paul K. Joyce. He went on to prove that Bob was no one-hit wonder by also grabbing the top spot a year later, in September 2001, with Mambo number five. Who do the bookies fancy this year? Lad Baby, also known as graphic designer Mark Hoyle, has occupied the Christmas number one spot for the last two years with novelty songs We Built This City and I Love Sausage Rolls and is going for a hat trick with another sausage roll themed song, this time to the tune of Journey's Don't Stop Believing. You have been warned. Another novelty offering is the dancing bin men's boogie round the bins at Christmas. Meanwhile, if you fancy more traditional fare, then Jess Glynn has discovered Donny Hathaway's This Christmas. And even former Oasis frontman Liam Gallagher is getting in on the act. In typically humble and self-deprecating fashion, he has described his Christmas song entitled All You're Dreaming Of as an instant classic that is perfect for this time of year. Considering the year we've all had, I hope this brings back some much-needed love and hope. Bing Crosby would have been proud. Taylor Swift could make a late entrance as well, with three singles from her new album set to enter high in the charts on Friday. Talking of Bing, what about the old favourites? Interestingly, this year's Christmas charts could be awash with them. A slew of classics old and new have already been re-released and are bobbing in and out of the top ten. Among them, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas Is You, currently at number one. Wizards, I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. Band-Aids, Do They Know It's Christmas, which is number eight. Shaking Stevens, Merry Christmas Everyone, which is number six. And, of course, A Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues. It made the news recently when the BBC decided to censor the lyrics on some stations, causing Nick Cave, among others, to take issue. Cave accused the Beeb of mutilating the song adding that he would have preferred then to have banned it outright and thereby allow it to retain its outlaw spirit and dignity. It's currently number four in the charts. Isn't Christmas a time for charity singles? Ah, just in time, or rather, Justin Bieber. Many of the singles mentioned above have charitable aims, including the sausage roll-themed Lad Baby offerings. But the one which is garnering all the headlines is, appropriately, by an NHS choir, which has teamed up with the Canadian pop star. The Lewisham and Greenwich NHS choir went head-to-head with Bieber for the Christmas top spot in 2015. Now they remixed his song, Holy, with proceeds to be split between various NHS charities. Unveiled, new world-class centre for film for Scotland to create up to 300 jobs by Martin Williams. 
new plans for a new world-class centre for film in Scotland, which are expected to create up to 300 jobs, have been unveiled, despite a cinema meltdown due to the Covid crisis. The move for the proposed new film house in Festival Square, Edinburgh, are being pushed forward following a four-month consultation period. The Centre for the Moving Image, the charity which incorporates the Edinburgh International Film Festival and the Film House in Edinburgh, that put forward the proposals, hope that if approved, construction will begin in 2023 and that it will complete in 2025. By 2034-35, the development is expected to sustain 290 full-time equivalent jobs and £21.8 million of revenue that otherwise would not exist in Edinburgh. They say the landmark home for Film House and the Edinburgh International Film Festival is now with the City of Edinburgh Council for consideration. It includes five screens, a theatre, rooftop restaurant and event space and will be built in Festival Square beside the Sheraton Hotel. A decision is expected by early summer 2021. The news comes despite cinemas being badly hit in the COVID-19 crisis. The UK box office is unlikely to reach £400 million this year, compared with £1.25 billion last year. It will be the smallest take since the mid-1990s. At the end of last month, Cineworld, the world's second-largest movie chain operator, secured financial lifelines worth £560 million to weather the coronavirus pandemic. The cinema chain, which shut all of its 660 movie theatres in the US and the UK in October, said the financial agreements meant it had enough liquidity to make it through next year, as long as cinemas are allowed to reopen by May. The existing film house inhabits a 190-year-old listed church building, and the owners say it cannot be redeveloped to deliver a viable fit-for-purpose building. The new film house owners say it will become a local, national and international hub for community engagement and learning, talent and skills development, film programming and audience engagement, innovation and enterprise and networking, which will benefit both the city's residents and Scotland's film industry. They expect to attract double the number of individual visits each year, from 369,960 to 806,251. Sandy Begby, chairman of the Centre for the Moving Image, said, We believe in the power of film to transform lives, whether watching, making or learning about film. We want the new film house to be a vibrant and exciting community of film for the people of Edinburgh and Scotland, a place for anyone who loves film to come together in one space. We want our new home to be inspiring and fully accessible for everyone, physically and emotionally. So whoever you are and wherever you're from, you'll be welcome and able to access and participate in all that we do. Edinburgh is home to internationally recognised landmark museums, galleries, concert halls and theatres, each celebrations of their respective art forms. The new film house will be a fitting addition to these, a celebration of film, the most popular art form of the 20th and 21st centuries. The new expanded film house is expected to house a 60% increase in education and learning activities and a significant increase in capacity for working with schools, increasing the number of children benefiting from 4,000 to an estimated 30,000 per year. The purpose-built facilities will also support the increased viability and sustainability of the charity in the long run, with a net additional £250,000 a year being generated, helping to fund the delivery of an expanded programme and what the charity calls an increase in affordable ticketing. 
During the construction phase, an estimated £4.8 million will be spent on labour, based on average full-time salaries in Edinburgh. This equates to 150 people employed full-time for one year, says the charity. Ken Hay, Centre for the Moving Image Chief Executive, said, We want the new film house to be the catalyst that transforms Festival Square so that it becomes a used and exciting public space. This new building itself will generate a lot of life in the square and we will design the square to be welcoming and work collaboratively with our neighbours, the City Council and key cultural partners in managing the use of the square for the benefit of the people of Edinburgh. As a cultural charity with a strong commitment to the social impact of its work, we believe Filmhouse will be a great caretaker of what could become a much more inviting and valued public space, and our commitment to environmental sustainability means that the building will operate on a net zero carbon basis from its first day of opening. The new Filmhouse, designed by Richard Murphy Architects, was described as a building for the future, operating on a net zero carbon basis from its opening day and actively encouraging staff and audiences to use low carbon travel options. The charity says it is a genuine once in a generation opportunity to create an inspirational and accessible temple for film culture in the heart of Edinburgh for the people of Edinburgh and to create a new home for two of Edinburgh's most cherished institutions which will enable them to fully deliver their vision and potential and underpin their viability for the long term. In October, news of the latest postponement of James Bond, No Time to Die, from November to next April, triggered meltdown in the industry, prompting Cineworld's full estate closure, while Odeon, the UK's second biggest operator, announced that a quarter of its 120 sites would move to weekend-only hours. View, the third largest UK operator, also shifted a number of its 91 sites to weekend-only hours. With movie theatres unable to be counted on to make big box office sales, studios have been pulling blockbusters from theatrical release as well as striking deals to launch them as premium video-on-demand rentals. The Herald, Tuesday the 15th of December 2020. News. Christmas rules could be tightened as talks held. This article is by David Ball. Nicola Sturgeon has taken part in crunch talks with Michael Gove and other devolved leaders to consider what the options are over relaxing COVID-19 rules at Christmas amid rising case numbers of the virus. The First Minister took part in a call with Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove and the leaders of the devolved administrations on Tuesday evening to discuss the Christmas measures. Talks will reconvene on Wednesday, the Scottish Government said, with a spokesman adding the call was a good opportunity to review the position on Christmas and discuss whether the messaging or guidance requires to be reinforced. The First Minister has urged the utmost caution when rules are relaxed for five days over Christmas, but Ms Sturgeon warned that there was a case for us looking whether we tighten the flexibilities, such as how many people can meet and for how many days. As things stand, up to eight people from three households can form a festive bubble for five days between December the 23rd and December the 27th. Speaking earlier today, the First Minister said there will be a Four Nations discussion later today to take stock of recent developments. But for now, I would urge the utmost caution. 
If you can avoid mixing with other households over Christmas, especially indoors, please do. But if you feel it is essential to do so, and we have tried to be pragmatic in recognising that some people will, then please reduce your unnecessary contacts as much as possible between now and then. Pressing the First Minister, she confirmed Aberdeen, Aberdeenshire and East Lothian will be moved from Tier 2 to Tier 3 from Friday. Scottish Greens co-leader Patrick Harvey said the four nations committed in advance to the Christmas relaxation before waiting to see whether measures in place were effective. He added that it now looks pretty clear that decision was rash. Mr Harvey asked Ms Sturgeon what position will the First Minister advocate on her call with Michael Gove later on today. Ms Sturgeon says the call will consider what the options are. She added, I'm not going into it with a fixed view, but I do think there is a case for us looking whether we tighten the flexibilities that were given any further, both in terms of duration and numbers of people meeting. I will consider the views of the other nations. If we can come to a four nations agreement, I think that would be preferable. If that is not possible, we will continue to consider within the Scottish Government what we think is appropriate. Wales First Minister Mark Drakeford described the Four Nations' approach to the festive period as a hard-won agreement and said he will not lightly put it aside. The move comes as Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer demanded an urgent review into the easing of rules after leading medical journals warned that a lessening of restrictions would cost many lives. This article is by David Ball. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 16th of December 2020. Angel Hart, Mickey Rourke, William Yortsberg, Angels Inferno by Barry Didcock, Senior Features Writer. Angels Inferno by William Yortsberg. No Exit Press, £9.99. Although not well known by name even in his native America, the work of New York-born William Hortsberg will be familiar to film fans on both sides of the Atlantic, thanks to Alan Parker's 1987 adaptation of Falling Angel, Hortsberg's 1978 novel. Originally serialised in Playboy, of all places, it was retitled Angel Heart by Parker, who cast Mickey Rourke as damned private investigator Harry Angel and Robert De Niro as Lewis Cipher, a thinly veiled alias for old Nick himself. Parker relocated the action from New York to New Orleans and cut away some of the ambiguity of Hjortsburg's original, but otherwise left the story intact right down to the 1950s setting. And now, over four decades on, here's the sequel, completed just before Hjortsburg's death in 2017, age 76. In defiance of that time gap, Hjortsburg picks up the story in the same scene in which Falling Angel ended. In the spring of 1959, a week or so before the Easter release of Some Like It Hot, brackets, ha, close brackets, with Harry suspected of murder and shackled to a New York cop in his own apartment as he views the grotesquely mutilated body of his teenage lover, Epiphany Proudfoot. That she's also his daughter and he's not Harry Angel but Johnny Favourite, a former crooner who sold his soul to the devil and then tried to welch in the deal, are facts that are slowly becoming clear to our wisecracking protagonist. The reader familiar with Angel Hart's take on the Faust story should find Angel's Inferno easy to follow, and Hjortsburg drops in occasional expository passages to clue in any laggards. 
Again, the story is presented as a pithy, punchy, first-person narrative which apes the style of the hard-boiled detective fiction of the period. Though taking a leaf from Hannibal Lecter creator Thomas Harris, Yorksburg has Johnny kill his captain and flee the US for Europe. In this case, it's Paris, and a high-rolling life in a series of ritzy hotels paid for courtesy of an ill-gotten windfall. Also in Johnny's pocket, a very special and very old silver coin which will guarantee him access to an exclusive club of devil worshippers. Yorksburg, who once wrote a whodunit involving Houdini, Conan Doyle and Edgar Allan Poe's ghost, has tremendous fun with some of the real-life characters who were kicking around Paris in the late 1950s. There's no space for French New Wave luminaries Francois Truffaut or Jean-Luc Godard who were shooting their early films in the streets of the left bank at the time, but Hjortsberg lets Johnny hang out with jazz greats Kenny Clark, Bud Powell and Zoot Sims and there's a starring role for a lugubrious William S. Burroughs, then resident at the so-called Beat Hotel. It isn't a flattering portrait, and Hjortsburg has Johnny involved Burroughs and his friend Gregory, brackets, presumably delinquent poet Gregory Corso, close brackets, in a murder outside legendary Montmartre, Cabaret, Lapin, Agile. Elsewhere, Johnny lingers over exquisite meals in Michelin-starred restaurants, quaffs countless glasses of cognac, champagne, Bordeaux and claret, so far so very James Bond, and smokes lucky strikes in preference to the local pills, Jetains. He falls in with, and then into bed with, Bijou Joliqua, the African-American owner of a voodoo cabaret where goats are sacrificed nightly, and he sets about cutting a bloody path towards his ultimate goal, a showdown with Lewis Cipher, who hired Harry Angel to track down Johnny Favourite, knowing full well they were one and the same, and the man Johnny has fingered for the killing of Epiphany and others. It's this quest which will eventually take him to Rome, and a climactic final scene in an ancient chamber bow, where else, the Vatican. A suspenseful and very welcome second outing for Johnny Favourite, Though given the audacious and twist-tastic finale, it's clear Hjortsburg's death has robbed us of what would have been a rip-roaring brackets and decidedly sulfurous close brackets third instalment by Barry Didcock. Recorded from the Herald, 16th of December 2020. Celtic fans plan mass Hamden gathering to welcome team boss ahead of Scottish Cup final, Mark Hendry. Celtic fans are planning a mass gathering outside Hamden this Sunday to help support their club ahead of the Scottish Cup final. The Green Brigade plan to roar on their stars from the Aitken Road entrance to the stadium at midday to welcome the team bus into the grounds before their clash with Hearts at 2.15pm. It comes as a direct opposite to the furious protests that have plagued the club in recent months. Manager Neil Lennon was a victim of fan demands for his sacking after a 2-0 loss to Ross County and drop points at home to St Johnson. But now with the quadruple treble at stake, fans have promised to put aside their frustrations for the big game on Sunday and provide the players and management staff with support they need. A tweet read, When the Celts go up to lift the Scottish Cup, we'll be there. Welcome the Hamden, Aitkenhead Road, entrance 12 o'clock. It is not known yet what police presence there will be at the National Stadium, though if Parkhead in recent weeks is anything to go by, there will be a significant number in attendance. Barriers have been in place at Celtic Park to keep out angry protesters. Then there is a matter of adhering to COVID-19 safety protocols. You are listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Wednesday 16th December 2020. 
It was only a matter of time before football fans rebelled against taking the knee. An opinion article by Stuart Wayton. The football authorities have a highly principled position about keeping politics out of football. Highly principled, that is, unless it's the right type of politics. Their politics. Celtic, for example, have been fined numerous times. Once for the heinous crime of fans flying a Palestinian flag at a match. Another for comparing IRA hunger striker Bobby Sands with Scottish nationalist icon William Wallace and asking the question, who's the terrorist and who is the freedom fighter? Clearly, politics is to be kept out of football. However, when it comes to taking the knee and celebrating Black Lives Matter, it appears that all bets are off. And fans across the leagues have been watching their players on television week after week take the knee to this campaign. The taking of the knee was always controversial. At least it was if you lived outside the lovey bubble of sports journalism and the football authorities. Talking to fans, from the outset there was opposition to both the act of taking the knee and the BLM campaign group itself. Indeed, I suspect, the football authorities used the fact that there were no fans in the ground to start this knee-taking performance. And then the fans came back, including Millwall fans who booed the knee-taking and the cosy bubble was suddenly burst. Of course, there was shock and outrage from pundits, and the Millwall fans were depicted as racists. For their part, the fans explained that they were simply expressing their opposition to the extremist ideology of BLM, a movement that has now spawned a political party. Interestingly, three days later, Millwall had another game. This time, the players stayed on their feet and held a banner opposing discrimination rather than celebrating BLM, and the same racist fans applauded. Some commentators have argued that the taking of the knee by players is a matter of freedom of expression. One particular columnist, with no sense of irony or grasp of reality, argued that, quote, taking the knee is a voluntary act by free citizens, unquote. The reality for players is that there is an immense amount of moral pressure being placed upon them to take the knee by the modern elites, the football authorities and the clubs. And given the hysterical reaction to the Millwall fans booing, I can't say I blame them for, en masse, bowing down to this new dogma of identity politics and anti-racism. Others have argued that the knee-taking is not really about Black Lives Matter, indeed that it is not political at all but merely an expression of solidarity and an opposition to the terrible discrimination that black players once suffered. I think there is some truth to this, but it doesn't fully explain why the BLM tag was needed in a sport that has been overloaded with anti-racist campaigns and awareness raising for two decades. There clearly is some kind of link between the BLM movement and football's BLM, even if it's not exactly clear what that is. But I also think that there is something in the argument that the anti-racist campaigning in football is not political because in many respects it's more like a religion than politics. It is more like a religion in the sense that anti-racism in football has become a dogma, a slogan, a sermon, a kind of incantation that we the plebs are encouraged to repeat time after time after time. If you watch football, you'll have grown used to the subliminal messages that flash on the screen telling us to say no to racism. We've grown used to the captain's armbands, the billboard flashing around the ground. 
even to international captains reading scripted anti-racist messages before World Cup games. But when you keep preaching at people and shouting in the faces of fans in this way, every now and again, don't be surprised if they shout back. After all, in a free society, this is the least we should expect from people who are still able to voluntarily act as free citizens. The Herald, Tuesday the 15th of December 2020. News. Fishermen mount court challenge over ministers' unlawful right to trawl in Scots waters. This article is by Martin Williams. Fishermen have accused ministers of acting unlawfully in a legal challenge over the right to trawl in Scotland's inshore waters. The Scottish Creole Fishermen's Federation, SCFF, has lodged a petition for a judicial review which is expected to have a marked bearing on fishing rights across Scotland. The SNP government are being accused of acting unlawfully by listening to its cronies in the industrial trawling sector and ending a proposed pilot no-trawl scheme in the inner sound off the Isle of Skye, which it is claimed could have brought greater benefits to the economy and the Scottish marine environment. The pilot was designed to test the environmental and economic benefits of creating trawl-free potting zones in the inshore. Those behind the case have heard at the Court of Session say the decision to end the pilot was made without a proper legal basis and that they will challenge the right to trawl that has existed since the early 1980s. Before the enactment of the Inshore Fishing Scotland Act in 1984, there was, since 1889, a ban on bottom trawling within three miles of the coast, providing coastal fringe of largely undisturbed marine life. The prohibition was removed largely because trawling had led to an increased depletion of offshore stocks and the mobile fishing sector, large trawlers operating in the area, wished to move inshore. The SCFF says since the ban there has been a significant and growing body of evidence showing that the decision to open up the inshore to trawling has been disastrous both environmentally and economically. Robert Younger, solicitor with environmental rights organisation Fish Legal, which is involved in the case, said unfortunately many people don't realise that the introduction of freedom to trawl principle to the inshore in the 1980s has destroyed much of Scotland's rich inshore marine ecology, which also forms productive basis of many of our inshore fisheries. There is increasing evidence showing the huge cost in terms of lost employment opportunities and lost revenue of that policy. This case is about forcing the Scottish Government to address that evidence and manage the inshore for the people of Scotland rather than for their friends in the troll sector. Fish Legal said it is backing the case because of its importance to coastal communities, artisanal fisheries, recreational sea anglers and the people of Scotland. At the centre of the case is the Sky Pilot that came amidst mounting evidence that the use of trawled fishing gear in the inshore caused widespread ecological damage, including significant declines in the diversity and size of commercial fish species. The inner sound proposal was rejected by Marine Scotland in February this year. 
The reason given states that the responses to the consultation make it clear that there is a continuing opposition to the proposer's inshore fisheries pilot in the inner sound of Skye. The majority of the proposed measure set out in the consultation were strongly opposed by respondents. The case is being brought on the basis that the Scottish Government rejected the pilot because of objections from the mobile fishing communities instead of applying their own published consideration. The SCFF believes that the decision to reject the pilot was unlawful because the Scottish Government did not properly assess the proposal, including examining learning opportunities and the wider issues of inshore fisheries management. Dr Thomas Appleby, an environmental lawyer at the University of West England, Bristol, said this vital case questions the basis of government decision-making on access to the UK's fishery, which we all know about biodiversity loss, food security and climate change, we should be managing as sensitively as possible. In continuing to allow damaging gears in the inner sound, the Scottish Government is running away from the problem and failing to listen to voices around the country who are calling for proper management. Elsewhere in the UK, other small-scale fishing communities are also taking a stand against industrial, often foreign-owned trawlers in UK waters, following recent confirmation by the House of Lords that the public, not businesses or industry, own the right to fish in UK waters. Alistair Sinclair, National Coordinator of SCFF, said Scotland cannot continue defending a Jer Bolsonaro slash and burn type model of exploitation until there is nothing left worth protecting. In a single generation, since the removal of the inshore three mile limit in 1985, our inshore ecology and productivity have been destroyed. However, if Marine Scotland is willing to change, the restriction of trawled gears in the inshore will not only reverse decades of degradation and destruction, but will actually create significant economic benefits. It is a win-win. The SCFF has raised wider concerns that this case follows a pattern that suggests that the mobile fishing sector wields too much influence with Marine Scotland and that the management of Scottish fisheries appears more aligned with the interests of the industrial trawlers than with the public interest or fisheries policy under the National Marine Plan. Charles Clover, Executive Director at the anti-overfishing charity Blue Marine Foundation said, We are seeing local fishing communities across the UK starting to fight back against a nonsensical system that allows our inshore waters and even our offshore marine protected areas to be routinely damaged by trawlers and dredgers, a practice that makes no sense economically or environmentally. A Scottish Government spokesman said, We can confirm that judicial review proceedings have been raised. Since these proceedings are ongoing, it would be inappropriate to comment further. This article is by Martin Williams. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 17th of December 2020. Review. Could the Chinese dream be our nightmare? By Ian McWhirter. The great decoupling, China, America and the struggle for technological supremacy, Nigel Inkster, Hearst, £25, review by Ian McWhirter. China has a heart of glass, according to Nigel Inkster. Despite commanding immense power, its government is prone to taking childish offence at real or imagined slights by foreigners. 
We saw an example recently when Chinese agents posted doctored images of an Australian soldier apparently murdering an Afghan child. The Australians had aroused Beijing's wrath by calling for an independent UN investigation into the origins of Covid in Wuhan. China has refused to countenance any investigation not conducted by its own agencies, which are, of course, directly answerable to the Chinese Communist Party, CCP. Inkster is satisfied that while China did not invent coronavirus, it tried to cover it up. Chinese authorities delayed informing the World Health Organization about the spread of COVID-19 in Wuhan and gave misleading assurances that it was not being transmitted between humans. This kind of secrecy comes naturally to an authoritarian state in which officials fear losing their privileges, or worse. The death penalty is still widely used in China, which, according to Amnesty International, executes more people than the rest of the world combined. When they finally admitted to the scale of the epidemic, the Chinese authorities instigated a military-style lockdown of Hubei province and its 60 million inhabitants. It worked. A year on, China appears to have virtually eliminated the disease. Indeed, as Western economies sink into post-Covid depression, China is once again powering ahead. Inkster fears that the pandemic could mark a major milestone towards what is called the Chinese dream of global economic hegemony. This would be secured partly through the Belt and Road Initiative, an $8 trillion network of infrastructure and client states being established by China across the world, often through a kind of semi-colonial debt servitude among countries like Sri Lanka. It would also involve this digital Silk Road, China's project to become a technological superpower and remake the internet in its image. The state-backed telecoms giant Huawei is seeking to establish global Chinese dominance of the means of communication through providing the infrastructure of 5G telephony. Inkster writes that China is also determined to become a world leader in artificial intelligence, AI, having spent billions in the means of technological surveillance and control. It is a world leader in facial recognition. Every significant public space in this vast country is being placed under 24-hour AI-enabled video scrutiny, according to Inkster who says Chinese citizens routinely receive text messages informing them that they've been fined for petty crimes such as jaywalking or dropping litter. Under the Orwellian social credit system, 1.4 billion Chinese citizens are each being given digital scorecards, indicating how good they have been. Being a good citizen in China means paying taxes, working hard and of course not criticising the government. Speech is tightly regulated. All this is justified in terms of supposedly Confucian virtues of respect for authority, community solidarity and civil order. China has made a mockery of claims that the internet would break down national borders and undermine authoritarian governments. As bureaucrats realised early on that the reverse is true, the internet allows for greater social control than analogue dictators like Stalin could ever have dreamed of. In 1995, Bill Clinton famously said trying to control the internet would be like nailing jello to the wall. A decade later, says Ingster, Chinese walls were covered in jello. First of all, they set up the Golden Shield Project, known in the West as the Great Firewall of China, to block externally generated content. China now has the world's largest online user community and digital economy through Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent, the CCP-controlled versions of Google, Amazon and Facebook. The internet has become a means of monitoring and suppressing all forms of intellectual dissent. Yet, if modern China sounds like hell on earth, Inkster says there is widespread public acceptance of this degree of social control. 
People feel secure. There is less crime, pornography and hate speech. Freedom of thought, democracy and individualism are seen as alien vices that can lead to chaos and unhappiness. Mind you, in such a tightly controlled country, can anyone claim to know what people really think? Are ordinary Chinese people genuinely happy or just acting the part for the cameras? The absence of overt dissent may be largely a product of thought control. There's certainly no shortage of dissent right now in Hong Kong, Tibet are among the one million persecuted Uyghurs in Xinjiang province being held in re-education camps. There is the bitter memory of the Tiananmen Square in 1989 when hundreds, perhaps thousands of pro-democracy demonstrators were killed by Chinese troops. President Xi believes the surest way to avoid dissent in the future is to deliver economic growth in a consumer society. The Chinese economic miracle is genuine enough from an essentially peasant society 40 years ago. It's become the world's second largest economy and likely to soon surpass the USA. That this capitalist economic miracle has happened under communist government may appear to be one of the great paradoxes of modern history. However, since the days of Mao Zedong, the interests of the CCP have always come first and socialism second. If political stability requires a dose of Western capitalism, so be it. Decades of double-digit growth were based on cheap labour and regimented working practices, plus, according to Inkster, a rigged exchange rate, unfair trading practices, theft of intellectual property on an industrial scale, and ruthless exploitation of the environment. China's growth was based on coal, and it still mines half of all the coal in the world despite promises to reach net zero by 2060. Inkster says 20% of China's arable land is polluted by heavy metals. But these issues don't figure in public debate. The Glassheart social media campaigns combined with the so-called wolf warrior approach to diplomacy has precluded critical scrutiny of rapacious Chinese capitalism even in the West. President Xi is now turning to modernising the Chinese army, already the largest in the world. China is challenging America's military presence in the South Pacific and remains determined to annex Taiwan. This great decoupling, as Ingster calls it, is unlikely to end well. An advisor to the International Institute of Strategic Studies in London, Inkster used to work for MI6. Perhaps this has coloured his view of China. The book reads more like a charge sheet than a dispassionate assessment of China's new world standing. But the central message that this profoundly regimented and authoritarian country is about to achieve global economic and military hegemony is sound, well documented and a disturbing challenge to the West as it emerges battered from the Covid nightmare. By Ian McWhorter Recorded from the Herald, 17th of December 2020. Jim Goodwin dedicates win over Rangers to absent St Mirren fans after Betfred Cup quarter-final triumph. Christopher Jack. Jim Goodwin dedicated St Mirren's shock win over Rangers to the absent buddies crowd as he savoured their Betfred Cup success. The Saints became the first side this term to beat Stephen Gerrard's side thanks to a double from Jamie McGrath and the late, and late Connor Mac McCarthy winner. Goodwin and his players now have a semi-final meeting with Livingston to look forward to and the Irishman was proud of their efforts on a remarkable and memorable night for the Paisley outfit. Goodwin said, Their fitness levels are incredible, in fairness to them, and I said after a game with Motherwell on Saturday that I would be surprised if there is a team in the land that works harder than them. They gave me absolutely everything during the week and it is nights like that where all the hard work and efforts on the fitness front pays off. I am just over the moon for everybody. For everyone connected with the club, I am just delighted. 
The players really deserve it after such a difficult season. But for all the St Mirren's fans at home watching, I'm just delighted that we were able to put a smile on their faces. Nobody outside of our dressing probably gave us a hope in hell. We believed we could win the game and I'm just delighted for everybody that we were able to do it. The Herald, Wednesday the 16th of December 2020. News. Indy Ref 2 inevitable, says Scott's entrepreneur, as Brexit talks drag on. This article is by Mark Williamson. Retail tycoon Sir Tom Hunter has said a second referendum on Scottish independence is inevitable as he hammered home criticism of the handling of Brexit by politicians. However, the Ayrshire entrepreneur said a vote on independence should not be held for the time being, although any attempt by a UK Prime Minister to block one could backfire. My position on a second referendum on Scottish independence is 1. It's inevitable, and two, it definitely should not be now, said Sir Tom, who highlighted the challenges posed by the coronavirus crisis. He added, politicians are not good at multitasking. We need to get the economy back on a firmer footing, then let's have a grown-up debate like we had last time. Sir Tom declined to say how he would vote in a second independence referendum. He appears to feel Prime Minister Boris Johnson would be unwise to maintain his insistence that the result of the referendum held in 2014 should be binding for a generation. He noted that the Scots word thrawn means the more people are told they can't have something, the more they want it. Sir Tom's comments came as negotiators from the UK and the European Union raced against time to agree a trade deal before the end of the Brexit transition period on December the 31st. All I would say is we need to get a deal and I think we will get one and when we do get a deal I would like the politicians to explain why it's better than the one we had before because it won't be, observed Sir Tom. Noting that Brexit had been billed as a move by the UK to take back control, he asked, Control of what? Sir Tom said entrepreneurs could help lead the country out of the current crisis as he hailed the success of a firm he helped grow from a fledgling into a multi-billion pound business. He was an early investor in the Hutt Group e-commerce business, which turned heads in September when it completed a £5.4 billion stock market flotations. Led by Matt Golding and John Gallimore, Hutt Group has expanded from selling DVDs online into markets ranging from fashion to health and well-being through a stable of brands that includes MyProtein and Ico. The flotation is reported to have valued Sir Tom's stake in the business at around £150 million. It underlined his standing as one of Scotland's most successful investors in the fast-changing retail industry. Sir Tom shot to prominence after selling the sports division retail business he developed for £290 million in 1998 and has invested successfully in other retailers such as the office shoe business. He said yesterday that the success of Hutt Group underlined how much entrepreneurs who were prepared to take risks and potentially disrupt the status quo could contribute to the country. The UK will be led out of this crisis by entrepreneurs like Matt and Johnny creating jobs and plotting the future, not moaning about the past. 
Good luck to all the disruptors. We need you more than ever, said Sir Tom. He added, the Hutt Group PLC has created 3,000 high-quality jobs since March 2020, taking their total to 10,000, average age 26 years. We are very proud to be shareholders. The flotation came around 11 years after Sir Tom became a shareholder in Hutt Group, having invested what he described as a small amount in the business. The West Coast Capital businessman Sir Tom founded to invest the proceeds of the sports division deal could net a big game by selling its shares in Hutt Group. West Coast Capital recorded a £30 million net gain in the latest financial year after gifting around £50 million to the charitable Hunter Foundation, which Sir Tom founded to help promote positive change. To be clear, the purpose of West Coast Capital is to make money and transfer to the Hunter Foundation, where we will invest for the common good, said Sir Tom. In the latest accounts for the organisation, the foundation says it will continue to support education, young people, entrepreneurship and poverty alleviation underpinned by leadership development in a highly focused manner. Trustees said the foundation continues to support, fund and back disruptors to the system in partnership with a range of partners. In the year to March 31st, it awarded grants worth £8.5 million in total. The biggest grant, £2 million, was made to Kilt Walk, which raises funds for charities. Children in Need and the Head Teacher Leadership Academy were awarded £1.1 million and £0.4 million, respectively. This article is by Mark Williamson. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 17th of December 2020. Nicola Benedetti vents frustration at cancelled music events by Caitlin Hutchison. Nicola Benedetti has vented her frustrations about the cancellation of music events as lockdown restrictions tighten across the country. Nicola Benedetti was working in partnership with Battersea Arts Centre to put on a series of concerts in the run-up to Christmas, which organisers have now been forced to cancel following the announcement that London would be placed in Tier 3. Speaking on behalf of the entire performing arts community, the Scots violin virtuoso expressed her heartbreak at events across the country not being able to go ahead due to the pandemic. She said, We're all totally devastated that we have had to cancel these concerts and it's beyond frustrating. Venues up and down the country have worked tirelessly to ensure that they are COVID secure, following all government advice. She added, rules require discipline from people to carry out those instructions, and there is no more disciplined environment than a concert hall or theatre. They are there to experience music and art, and would never jeopardise anyone's health in that sort of controlled environment. Benedetti has previously said that mismanagement and a lack of leadership is costing people their livelihoods in the music industry. She has also expressed her belief that access to the arts is a fundamental right, especially useful in energising us as we face challenges such as those caused by the coronavirus pandemic. After last week's Tier 3 announcement, the violinist spoke of her frustration as she vented that transmission risks are far, far greater in other scenarios which can continue under Tier 3 regulations while the performing arts suffer. The risk to people's health is far, far greater in so many other circumstances that are allowed to continue in Tier 3, she went on. 
On behalf of the entire performing arts community, I would like to express my heartbreak at events now not being able to go ahead. These concerts were planned to provide much needed respite in the lead up to Christmas and I'm so sorry we are now unable to share these magical moments with you but look forward to welcoming everyone in spring 2021 by Caitlin Hutchison. The Herald, Thursday the 17th of December 2020. News. Coronavirus Scotland. Christmas gathering warning from Ayrshire Covid patient. This article is by Gianni Marini. A new mother has made an appeal from a bed in a coronavirus ward asking people to think twice before seeing other households this Christmas. Sarah McInnes gave birth just seven weeks ago but had to have an emergency appointment with her GP last week who discovered she had appendicitis. The 41-year-old was taken to Air Hospital for surgery and as she woke up after her operation, she was told she had tested positive for COVID-19. She told the Herald, I was besides myself with worry. My first thought was for my baby and my family. Sarah had been in a bubble with her dad, who has pancreatic cancer, along with her partner Joseph and their seven-week-old Alexander. Knowing she was asymptomatic but still carrying the virus made Sarah think about the damage that could be caused if she had been going around Christmas shopping and then hosting a dinner with other households. From her hospital bed she said, It's the asymptomatic people I fear for the most. Sitting down next to a grandparent or a friend who has asthma and then they end up in here. Between December the 23rd and 27th, the Scottish Government has eased restrictions to allow families to form a bubble indoors of up to three households, up to a maximum of eight people, not including children under 12. The guidance applies to the whole of the UK and the Government said it is to help reduce loneliness and isolation. But Sarah, along with health experts, believe that Christmas gatherings are a bad idea. Sarah said it's dangling a carrot and expecting people not to take it. You don't want to think of people left alone at Christmas, but what's worse, lonely at Christmas or a funeral in January? Public health expert Professor Linda Bald of the University of Edinburgh said the easing was a mistake which will have consequences and told BBC Breakfast, I think that means the Christmas period is a risk. Independent Sage, a group of scientists who publish advice on the COVID-19 crisis, reported that households meeting over Christmas will present a very real danger of a third wave of the pandemic. Sarah said, A few weeks ago I was wondering, are these COVID wards full? Now I know the answer is yes. We all deserve a good 2021, not a disaster waiting to happen. Dr Crawford McGuffey, Medical Director, said NHS, Ayrshire and Darren has prepared extensively to deal with COVID-19 and continues to work to ensure we have the right resources, equipment and staffing in place. This article is by Gianni Marini. You are listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Friday 18th December 2020. Christmas? We could give it a miss this year. An opinion article by Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. 
Less than a week to go, and in a perverse way, I'm almost looking forward to this Christmas. We've already decided that we're not going to impose ourselves on our nearest and dearest. Too many dodgy immune systems. Too much potential guilt. Plus, most of them are too far away. We might wave through the window at the ones nearby. Possibly even go a socially distanced walk if the weather allows. But otherwise, it's just the four of us. Father, two daughters and cat. Staying at home this year. No need to worry about Christmas dinner for once. We're all vegetarians, apart from the cat. All hate Brussels sprouts and aren't very keen on Christmas pudding anyway. In short, no festive faff. The thing I keep thinking is that maybe it's right that this is not a normal Christmas. Let's face it, it hasn't been a normal year. Why should we pretend that somehow this December 25th is a time out of the battle? The virus, I'm guessing, won't be calling a ceasefire and offering a kickabout. Does it feel safe to meet up and drink and make merry right now? Clearly not. So why invite the virus in? It's not bearing any gifts, or none that any of us would want. The UK government's Christmas messaging has been the usual inept, incoherent mess. They're such a shower. The First Minister has been clearer on her desire for us not to meet and mingle, but even she hasn't come out and said, Look, let's just forget about it this year. Stay at home. Read a book. And yet shouldn't we just accept that this Christmas isn't like last Christmas, and hopefully won't be like next Christmas, and act accordingly? Truth is, even in the best of times, there can be a sense of obligation about the festive season. That notion that enjoyment is compulsory. Yet for many people, this is the worst time of year. The time they are loneliest. The time when they remember who they have lost. There are people in hospital with coronavirus, with cancer, with all the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Not that should mean you shouldn't celebrate if you are in the position to. Anything but. However you do it, whether it's by raising a glass or two, helping yourself to an extra slice of turkey or nut roast, sitting down to watch Mrs Brown boys, I don't understand that one, but people do, or bagging a Munro, which frankly is a bit show-offy. I hope you enjoy it. Me, I'm hoping for a bit of peace and quiet. The new Jack Reacher novel, no mention of Brexit, and a sense that maybe 2021 might be better. Just think of it. No poisonous ideologue in the White House, a working vaccine, and a new Wes Anderson movie. Things can only get better, surely. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 18th of December 2020. Nadia Hussein rises above the rest to become the most successful Bake Off star of all time by Martin Williams, senior news reporter. She won millions of fans in the Great British Bake Off with her bubbly personality and her tearful winner's acceptance speech and has gone on to become one of Britain's best-loved celebrity chefs. 
Now Nadia Hussain has been hailed as the most successful Bake Off contestant of all time in an analysis that ranked the contestants based on cookbooks, social media influence, Google search volume, TV appearances and on-screen career length. The personal finance experts money.co.uk did the number crunching in an examination of the performance of 24 winners and runners-up from past Bake Off series. Ms Hussein took the number one spot in the Celebrity Chef Credit Report scoring 91 out of 100, well in front of Candice Brown, 76.5, John Waite, 68, Ed Kimber, 60 and Kim Joy Hewlett, 57. Five years ago, when she was a contestant in the sixth series of Bake Off, Ms Hussein's skills with cakes and loaves and her stylish appearance turned her into a new kind of role model. She was a young modern British and also a hijab-wearing Muslim woman of colour who grew up one of six children in a working-class Bangladeshi community in Luton and had an arranged marriage at the age of 20. An infectiously warm presence made a move into TV presenting a natural progression and that is what allowed her to score highly in the new survey. She has fronted several food programmes including a BBC Two series called Nadia's British Food Adventure, appeared in over 115 TV shows, became a guest presenter on Loose Women and wrote various newspaper columns. In total she has released seven cookbooks in which Nadia's Kitchen 2016, Nadia's Family Favourites 2018 and Time to Eat 2019 reached bestseller status. One of the 35-year-old's best accolades to date was being selected to bake Queen Elizabeth's birthday cake when the monarch turned 90 in April 2016. In 2016, she was named by De Bretz as one of the 500 most influential people in the UK and one expert in community cohesion said she had done more for British-Muslim relations than 10 years of government policy. But on Twitter, where she has nearly 250,000 followers, she once admitted that she was getting racist abuse on a daily basis. In second place is cooking whiz and fashion icon Candice Brown, scoring 76.5 out of 100 in the report. She left her job as a PE teacher to pursue a career in baking and during her time in Bake Off, she was named Star Baker three times, more than any other contestant in the series. Since being crowned the winner of Series 7 and the last winner of the BBC version of the show, she has landed the role as a columnist for The Times and released a cookbook featuring comfort food recipes. In 2018, she took part in reality TV show Dancing in Ice, as well as appearing in over 58 TV shows since winning her series of Bake Off. Information about Candice is searched 26,000 times per month on Google, and she has an avid 249,000 followers on Instagram. Commenting on the results of the Celebrity Chef Credit Report, Salman Haki, personal finance expert at money.co.uk, explains how celebrity chefs are cooking up a storm outside of the kitchen. Celebrity and wealth used to be the exclusive domain of actors, singers and sports stars, but in recent years there is plenty of cash in cooking and baking because of the increased appetite for food shows, she said. As the world's culinary experts consolidate their TV appearances, recipe books and expand their brands on social media, it's fair to say that the top cooks are feasting in the money they are making from their fame. Whether it's their hypnotising cooking skills or their harsh but entertaining reviews, celebrity foodies are much more than just skilled in the kitchen. The Celebrity Chef Credit Report reveals that the top 24 Bake Off contestants could earn an estimated £13.8,000 from sponsored posts on Instagram. It found that Bake Off contestants have a two-year TV career on average, with winners John Waite, Nadia Hussain and Candice Brown enjoying the longest broadcast careers. 
The top 24 contestants star in a total of 458 TV episodes and see a combined 267,300 global searches per month. The Great British Bake Off has unveiled the lineup for its Christmas and New Year's specials. It was revealed by the programme via Twitter on Thursday which former bakers would be making their triumphant return for the festive one-off episodes. Rosie Brandreth-Pointer, Ruby Bogal, James Hillary and Jamie Finn will make an appearance in the Channel 4's Christmas Eve episode. Mr Bogal was a finalist in the show's ninth season, while Mr Hillary and Ms Brandreth-Pointer took part in the tenth season, and Mr Finn appeared in season eight. The New Year's special will see former contestants Helena Garcia, Henry Bird, Nancy Burtwistle and Rahul Mandel go up against each other. Ms Burtwistle won the show's fifth season and Mr Mandel also came top when he competed in the ninth season of the show, while Ms Garcia and Mr Bird both appeared in season 10. The special will air on January 3 and sees Noel Fielding return to his spot as co-host the show alongside Matt Lucas by Martin Williams. You are listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Friday 18th December 2020. It's time to go cold turkey on our plastics addiction. An opinion article by Rebecca McQuillan, Senior Features Writer. In May, my husband, daughter and I went on a litter pick by the Water of Leith to make the daily walk a bit more interesting. There had been heavy rains a few weeks earlier, and the sewers had overflowed into the river. As well as the usual cans and bottles, the endless sweet wrappers and other unspeakable items, we found lots of disintegrating cloths. It eventually dawned on us what they were, polyester wet wipes. We found somewhere between 30 and 40, manky and caked in mud, in half an hour. They probably came from that single flood. Who knows how many hundreds more there were embedded in the riverbank under layers of silt. As they gradually decayed, judging by their condition, they were leaching microplastics into the river habitat. Plastic has infiltrated every part of the natural world. Further along the river, we saw how blue plastic rope and stringy plastic bags was part of the fabric of the riverbank, enmeshed in the root network of rushes. Pulling at one piece of rope, we had the surreal experience of dragging from the muddy depths a submerged plastic baby walker. The rising tide of plastic, 8 million metric tonnes entered the world's oceans in 2010, is a clacking, bombing monument to our sheer folly as a species. Creative, daring, wildly innovative, yes, but bloody foolish. We have created a product that is strong, light, versatile and durable, only to use it for making millions of disposable products, when the one thing plastic can never be is disposed of. We're all trying to reduce our carbon footprints, but our plastic footprint is indelible, a permanent, physical biography of each and every one of us. Our old toothpaste tubes? Still here. The biros we've chucked out? Still here. The polyester skirt the lady across the aisle on the bus was wearing on June 25th, 1997. It has immortality written into its molecular structure. Over time, this stuff doesn't disappear. It just breaks down into smaller pieces. 
Much of it can't be recycled or was dumped before recycling was available, though a proportion has been incinerated in clouds of toxic fumes. Plastic necklaces, nylon drain pipes, Bakelite telephones. We made them to last, and they certainly have. The true shame of all this is how long it's taken to act. How did we not see what was happening before? Trees waving plastic bags around as if trying to catch our attention were the backdrop to my childhood in the 70s and 80s. We had campaigns then about putting crisp bags in the bin, but not about the crisp bags themselves. Sure, I remember some vague, unease-seen pictures of landfill sites circled by gulls. Gosh, does all that rubbish just go into the ground? But it was just the way it was. As for the sea, well that was just a convenient dumping ground. The ocean is huge, we must have thought. It can cope with a few plastic bags. Let's just avoid looking beneath the surface in case we don't like what we find. This arc of idiocy has brought us to where we are now, wakening up to a problem that has been staring us in the face for decades, only at the point when vast damage has been done. And now, in 2020, the Scottish Government is consulting on banning single-use plastics. Good. Wonderful. Excellent. But again, when you look at it, a ban on plastic cutlery, plates, trays, straws, stirrers and balloon sticks, polystyrene cups and containers, and oxo-degradable products, implicated in microplastic pollution... What strikes you is the tardiness of it all. Why on earth didn't we ban them years ago? These items have been chosen because they are the ones most commonly found washed up on Europe's beaches. Fine, but my goodness, it's not nearly enough. There is far too much plastic in all our lives. We wear it, we sleep in it, and we teach it by filling our children's lives with it. Felt-tip pens, foam stickers, sequins, plastic bricks... Action figures, glitter, glue sticks. You cannot escape it. It's wonderful and terrible, a passing delight which can become a permanent menace. Every time we wash our plastic clothes, we release tiny fragments of polyester, nylon, acrylic and polyamide into the water. In spite of their size, the fibres can absorb poisonous substances from seawater. A single machine wash can release 700,000 microfibers, much of which ends up in the ocean and in the food chain. The Marine Conservation Society reports that 63% of shrimp in the North Sea contain synthetic fibers. It recently launched a petition calling on the governments of the UK to make washing machine makers fit microfiber filters to new machines by 2023. There can be no excuse for them not to. Unquestionably, we do need some plastic. You only have to look at how important PPE has been during the pandemic. Plastic making will continue. But as Friends of the Earth says, we need to identify essential plastics and eradicate the rest. It is championing a bit, tabled at Westminster by Orkney and Shetland MP Alistair Carmichael calling for targets to be set for reducing plastic pollution. 
Yes, that's right. We don't have any yet. Let's not kid ourselves that recycling can facilitate our gorging on plastic. Recycling plastic is better than discarding it, obviously, but it still ends up in the environment eventually. Many plastics can only be recycled a few times. It's better to stop producing the unnecessary stuff, reduce demand for new plastic by buying less of it, use what we have for longer, and do what we can to keep plastic out of the natural world. Allowing it into the environment is like mining the habitat of other creatures. It's not unusual to find plastic can holders used to keep drink cans together, left over from alfresco drinking sessions, dumped by rivers. They are otter nooses. Once the animals have them round their necks, they can't get them off. What a mess we've made. As the creative, daring and wildly innovative creatures that we are, we could be doing a hell of a lot more to get ourselves out of it. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 18th of December 2020. Paperback reviews, All We Are Saying, Medals and Prizes, Despised, by Alistair Mabbitt. All We Are Saying, David Sheff, Pan, £9.99. Amazingly, 40 years have passed since John Lennon's murder. This was his and Yoko's last major interview, conducted by Sheff over three weeks and completed two days before the shooting. At 24, Sheff had interviewed Jimmy Carter, Martin Luther King Jr and Albert Schweitzer, but this encounter remains a personal highlight. We don't need publicity, we need to explain what we're doing, says Lennon, and they do so at length, discussing parenthood, gender roles, public perceptions and putting the past behind them, with their relationship inevitably at the centre of it all. It makes an interesting contrast to Jan Venner's book-length interview Lennon Remembers, made a decade earlier. The Lennon chef meets is less bitter and more at ease with himself, though never far from a contentious outburst. The points when he talks about the future looking forward to all the years he could have ahead of him are especially poignant. Medals and Prizes, John Metcalf, and other stories, £11.99. Born in Carlisle and emigrating to Canada as a young man, John Metcalf has enjoyed a distinguished career as an author, teacher and editor for five decades, but until now he's never been published in the land of his birth. This collection pulls together eight stories which highlight his skill and versatility, his talent for finding exactly the right detail to deflate a character's self-importance or undercut an emotional moment is apparent from the opening to the first story, Single Gents Only. Metcalf's somewhat chilly view of humanity is explored more thoroughly in pieces like the bleakly comical computer dating story Girl and Gingham, the novella-length medals and prizes following the diverging paths of two boys who want to grow up to be cultivated and mildly louche, shows them developing character through some quite lengthy scenes. Metcalf's meticulousness, combined with an unsentimental eye and shot through with acerbic satire, brings forth some masterful stories. Despised, Paul Embry. Polity, £15.99. The Tories' establishment of a blue wall in former Labour strongholds in the general election was just the most recent sign of the widening chasm between the Labour Party and its traditional constituency. In this fiercely argued polemic, a Brexit-supporting firefighter and trade unionist from Dagenham examines how this schism opened up and how it might be bridged. 
He sees a Labour Party run by an arrogant liberal and cultural elite promoting cosmopolitan liberalism while holding their working class constituents' concerns in contempt. To reconnect with its base and start winning elections, Embry argues the party has to become more economically radical and more culturally conservative. There's a lot here that Labour should take on board, but when it comes to the recognition that Embry is playing on exactly the same fears of cultural erosion and longing for a return to traditional values that a wave of right-wing authoritarians across the world have exploited with great success. By Alistair Mabbitt That was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.